Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 78. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. We are nearing midsummer and hope you had a wonderful Independence Day celebration. Steve and I enjoyed a tasty, noisy, smoky, but fun evening with family and friends. And a little later in the podcast, Steve will read a couple patriotic poems by Eugene Shea to commemorate the 4th of July. We also have Lori Bauer's Journal of Miracles, in which she shares thoughts about raising daughters and horses. And Richard Madison will join us long distance to talk about our all-too-human desire for revenge. If we have time, we'll throw in some kid chuckles. But right now, Steve will start us off in an excerpt from my most recent book, Winds of Hope. Because Winds of Hope is a prequel to the Kate Nielsen series, I set it up in a different manner than books one, two, and three. It's divided into three sections, the first titled Kate, the second Cyrus, and the last one is Mike. Steve will read a segment from Cyrus's perspective. Cyrus Morris stepped out of his ranch house onto the front porch, a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. The screen door slammed behind him. Slick, his border collie, was sleeping in the far corner. The dog raised his head and sniffed the air. Cyrus sometimes gave him pieces of whatever he was eating, so he knew that was what the dog was hoping for. But when no food scraps came his way, Slick dropped his chin to his paws and closed his eyes. Cyrus blew out a puff of smoke and inhaled the evening air. No rain in the breeze tonight. He rested his shoulder against the support post and watched the top rim of the sun dip behind the canyon wall. The striated red rocks stained with black streaks served as an ever-present yet ever-changing backdrop for the cottonwoods that followed the creek, the newly greened hayfield, and his rustic barn. Now hidden, the sun cast spears of light into the clouds, varnishing his grandparents' homestead with a golden glow. With a groan and a crunch from his bad knee, Cyrus settled into the lone rocking chair, set the bottle on the wooden crate beside it, and lit another cigarette. He took a long drag, leaned his head against the chair back, and blew smoke rings at the porch roof. The calm, warm evening was a long time in coming let up from the north wind that had blasted down the canyon all winter long. But as much as he hankered for springtime during those endless frigid months, Sitting on the porch, staring across the home place, always set his mind to wandering through the plains of his past. But maybe this spring and this summer would be different. He was getting up in years. It was time to leave the dad-gum bygone days behind. The fledging leaves on the tall cottonwood that shaded the porch in the summer rattled with a wind gust. His grandfather had transplanted the tree from beside the creek the day after he and the neighbors finished building the house. It was ancient, as cottonwoods go, but still standing, a testimony to Cyrus's heritage. 
He'd always enjoyed its earthy smell and the way its leaves rustled. As a kid, he'd spent many an hour daydreaming in the treehouse he built in the tree when he was ten years old. It was still there, although a board or two blew off every now and then when the wind got to howling. He surveyed the homestead, what he could see of the 640 acres. It wasn't large, but it was his, and when it came down to it, just right for him. He could keep up with his place and pull a paycheck over at the Whispering Pines, too. His grandparents had left the ranch to his mother, their only living child, and she'd willed it to him, her only child. Like his parents, he'd had just one child who... Cyrus tapped ashes from the tip of the cigarette into the ashtray and picked up the beer. He wasn't going down that dark alley tonight. After two swigs, he put the bottle down and commenced rocking. The porch floorboards creaked a duet with the worn wooden rocker. For years, they'd had two adult-sized rocking chairs on the porch, plus a smaller one for Susan. Summer evenings, the three of them would rock and talk, rock and talk. Sometimes they'd eat brownies and homemade vanilla ice cream. Sometimes they'd have watermelon seed spitting contests. Sometimes they'd sit on the steps and count shooting stars. No matter what the kid thought these days, her early years were good years. Every now and again, as they sat together on the porch, she'd ask how he and her mom met and courted and married. When his version didn't match with her mom's, Susan would laugh and laugh. Despite the Pollyanna spin Helen put on the story, the fact was they'd had a rocky start from the get-go. Cyrus grunted, well, not the get-go. They'd been closer than cousins in elementary school, junior high, and most of high school. At least, he thought so. Cyrus sucked at the cigarette again, coughed, and dropped it in the ashtray. August 2nd. The day and how the smell of Helen's vanilla-scented hair filled the cab of his pickup were as clear in his head as if time had no power to dull the memory. That was the day he left home the first time, a month before he would have started his senior year of high school. The night before, his girlfriend from the fifth grade through junior high and high school, the girl he planned to marry the day they graduated, had told him she wanted to date other boys their senior year. It's not that I don't love you, Helen had said. Slumped against the seat back of his old Ford pickup, his arms across her shoulders, he'd bent his head to peer into her eyes. What? She focused on her hands. It's that I've never dated anyone else, I. My mom says I should have that experience before we get married, just so, just so I'll be sure. Shifting, she faced him. I don't want to marry anyone unless I'm 100% sure. Are you pulling my leg? Cyrus lowered his arm and twisted to see her better in the muted light from her parents' porch light. Because if you are, I don't think it's funny. I'm serious, Cy. Her voice was soft. She touched his shoulder. He jerked away. I'm 100% sure, 200% sure. And I have been since the day your family moved to the valley. I know. Isn't that enough? It takes two fully committed people to have a good marriage. That's what I want. 
a good marriage. When I'm older, Mom says we're too young to get married. So I'm not good enough for you? I didn't say that. He gripped the steering wheel with both hands, unable to comprehend life without Helen. Unwilling to comprehend life without Helen. Sigh, she whispered. Please try to understand. We'll still be friends, good friends, forever. Out! He snarled at her. Get out of my truck! If that's how you feel about me, about us, then there ain't nothing more to talk about. But Cyrus flung open the door, jumped out of the pickup, and ran around to the passenger side. He yanked the door, nearly ripping it off its squawking hinges, and pulled her out of the truck. It's over, Helen. We're done. Now get on in the house. Your mama is waiting for her baby girl. Please, Cy. He slammed the door, marched to the driver's side, got in and wrenched the door shut. She pounded on the window, but he hit the gas, spinning a U-turn on the wide gravel driveway. The pickup's back end swerved and rocked the truck. But he wound out of the turn and shot down the drive to the road, fully aware the truck tires spit rocks at Helen and billowed a dirt cloud in her face. He didn't care. She deserved it. The sun had not yet risen over the eastern wall of the canyon when Cyrus opened the pickup door to throw a box of clothes on the passenger seat. For a long moment, he stared at the dim spot where Helen had ridden ever since he bought the truck. With a shake of his head, he closed the door and went around to the driver's side. He'd kissed his mom goodbye last night, but he hadn't told his dad he was leaving. He wanted to get on the road before his father awakened on his way into town to fill the gas tank, he passed his best friend's place. The barn door was open and he saw a light on inside. Larry was already milking cows. Most days, Cyrus would have stopped to chew the fat, as his grandpa liked to say, but not this morning. He was too choked up to talk. The vanilla aroma that lingered in the cab wasn't helping matters. Losing Helen drilled a hole to the very core of his gut and filled it with unspeakable pain. The agony that clamped his midsection had wrung all the words out of his brain. If he tried to talk, he'd probably bawl like an orphan calf. Larry wouldn't know what to do with him. Last night, after Helen dropped the bomb that would forever change his life, he'd driven the county's dirt roads for hours. When he was too worn out to see straight, He'd gone home to find his father deep in a drunken, snoring slumber on the couch in front of a television blasting an ad for used cars. He tiptoed past him to his parents' bedroom, tapped the door jam, and whispered, Mom, you awake? He heard rustling and then her voice, soft. Come in and close the door. Somehow, she knew he didn't want to include his father in the conversation but then he never wanted to include his father. By the yard light sifting through the curtain, he could see she was sitting up. She patted the comforter. Sit down. He sat, smelling the night cream she slathered on every evening to protect her skin from the rigors of ranch life. What is it, son? He hadn't planned to tell her about Helen. All he'd intended to say was that he was going to Uncle Ted's place to work for him and that she should go with him and leave Dad to fend for himself. His uncle, whose cattle operation was much bigger than his father's, had told Cyrus many a time he'd hire him on his crew whenever he needed a change. No questions asked. Of course, 
He'd said those words on the sly, knowing his alcoholic brother would be mad as a swatted hornet by the loss of free labor. Cyrus hadn't planned to cry, either, but the tears leaked out anyway. Swiping at his cheeks with the backs of his hands, he mumbled, Helen's mom says... His voice broke. She says, we're too young to be talking marriage, but... His mother squeezed his arm. Edna is right, you know. Her voice was gentle. You're both young with years of living ahead of you. Why rush into marriage? Because, he blurted, because someone else might steal Helen. She smiled. I love Helen, and I believe you two are a good match for each other. If you're destined for marriage, you'll come together again after you've had time to mature. I can't stand to watch her with other guys while I sit in the corner like a dunce. You don't have to sit in the corner. You can date other girls, be friends with them, have fun. I know every girl in the county. None of them holds a candle to Helen. She's the only one I want to date. His mother sighed. You can be so hard-headed sometimes, Cyrus. Come with me, Mom. Uncle Ted and Aunt Betty will let us both live there. Their house is big. Plus, Jeannie and John moved out after high school. I know Dad will blow up, but he... I can't leave your father, son. This ranch would fall to pieces if he was left on his own. That's okay. We don't need this old place. Dad and the ranch can nosedive into whatever hole he digs for himself. It's not okay, Cyrus Moore. Cyrus blinked and jerked back. He hadn't heard that tone from her since she caught him practicing his slingshot aim on the chickens when he was nine. This was my grandparents' homestead, she said, her voice firm as a schoolteacher's. All 640 acres. It's not much, but it's mine and all I have to give you for an inheritance. He squinted through the darkness at her. The wind shifted and the lace pattern ruffled across her face. You mean Dad isn't? I mean my father only agreed to my marriage to your father when I promised to keep the ranch in my name only. He knew better than I did what I was getting into, but I couldn't see beyond your dad's blue eyes. He has badgered me ever since to add his name to the title. You've probably heard some of our fights when he gets to thinking about it. She brushed hair from her forehead. I've put up with a lot of guff from him over the years, but I refuse to back down on my promise to my father. Your father would sell the ranch out from under us just for one more bottle of whiskey. Cyrus grunted, pulled a bandana from his back pocket and blew his nose. He didn't doubt that for one snap of a finger. Last month, his dad had sold a tractor that was only a couple of years old, saying they needed to buy one with a cab on it. In the meantime... He'd get the old tractor behind the barn running again. According to his mother, the money had never made it to their bank account, and the old tractor still sat where it had sat for years, a forest of weeds growing up around it. This is my ranch, Cyrus, and yours. Your name is on the will. If I leave, the taxes won't get paid, the barn will fall down, mice will overrun the house, and my grandparents' homestead will be taken from us and sold to someone else. Cyrus stood and walked to the window. He'd known his grandparents homesteaded the property, but he hadn't known it was his mom's place, not his dad's. That changed everything. Neither parent had ever mentioned him being the heir, probably because it was a sore point between them. 
He'd always assumed he'd inherit the ranch, but he hadn't thought much about it because it would be a long time in coming. Even so, he couldn't leave now. He turned from the window. I'll stay, Mom, to help keep things going, but I won't go to school. Yes, you will. I can't. Are you using this as an excuse to get out of school? Because if you are, I told you, I can't watch Helen flirt with other yahoos in class or at lunch or at a ball game. I'd lose my cool and deck them. Then I get kicked out of school. Count on it. Your dad acts worthless because he didn't finish high school and he thinks everyone looks down on him. Dad acts worthless because he's a drunk. She blew out a long breath. Your Uncle Ted is a firm believer in education. If you go to Colorado, he'll insist you finish school. That's okay by me. I just don't want to go to the same school as Helen. His uncle had promised him free room and board. He had also told him he could work part-time when school was in session, plus play sports, which his dad insisted was a blasted waste of time. The real reason, Cyrus knew, was that sports would take him away from the chores his father didn't want to do. Then go to Colorado. I can't leave you two. I shouldn't have mentioned it, Mom. You and Dad aren't able to work this place without me. I'll hire part-time help. I thought money was tight. It is, but I have a bit of a stash. I'll mail my paychecks home. You don't. I will. I can't let you do that. Your father will drink your earnings dry. I'll send it to an account in town only you know about. She shook her head. He sat beside her again. I thought I was the future owner. Yes, but then let me help. You'll need to buy feed, bring the Fed out now and then, pay taxes, everything it takes to keep this place in operation. If you don't let me help, I won't leave. He knew that meant he'd butt heads with his old man again and again, but he had to do what he had to do. His mom leaned close to hug him. I'll miss you, son, and I'll pray for your heart to heal. She kissed his cheek. I can't wait to see you graduate. What a grand, happy day that will be. Cyrus stood. She would watch him graduate. He was sure of that. But his heart would never heal. Helen had shattered it beyond repair. Thank you, Steve. Now, for those of you who are just dying to find out what happened to Cyrus, and I'm sure you all are, uh, you can read the rest of his story in Winds of Hope and continuing in uh, books uh, 1, 2, and 3, Winds of Wyoming, Winds of Freedom, and Winds of Change. Now I'm going to be reading Lori Bower's Journal of Miracles, August 20, 1993. Misty green sky, bright purple grass. After I saddled my young Appaloosa, I put one foot in the English stirrup and put all my weight into that skimpy piece of metal, ready to hop down if he should startle, while Angie, my 15-year-old daughter, stands at the yearling's head. Amazingly, the horse doesn't move. I swing my leg over and gently sit down. He jumps, but then stands still again. Don't be nervous, Mom. You'll be fine, Angie reassures with a weak smile. I tell the horse to walk, and he jerks forward, getting used to the weight and feel of me on his back. He's surprisingly calm. 
The dream vanishes. As my alarm clock goes off, I roll over to shut it off, wipe sweat from my forehead, and sigh. I have just found out that my 20-year-old Appaloosa mare, Jewel, is three months pregnant. April 9, 1994. I come home from my college class to find my vet stitching up my mare. She cut her left eyelid almost clear off on something sharp while I was gone. She's due to fall any day and her eye is now swollen shut, giving her little depth perception. I hope to God she doesn't step on the newborn foal because she can't see him. April 10, 1994, 7.30 p.m. Jewel pushes and I pull on the little stick legs. They're wet, slippery, and cold. The amniotic sac broke 20 minutes ago, and if I don't get the foal out soon, it will die of asphyxiation in the birth canal. I try hard to keep down a rising panic. I look at Angie's pale face, which speaks volumes. Long lines crease her forehead. Sensory impressions bombard me. Body fluid strewn through the musty-smelling straw. Surprisingly little blood. My forehead dripping sweat. Steam rising from Jewel's body. Small puffs of air from my mouth, visible in the cold. Jewel's heavy, deep breathing. Two fragile sticks, seemingly too inadequate to support anything, poking out under her tail. Are they attached to something? Thirty minutes have passed. My heart pounds as I pray. God, let them be all right. I called my vet when Jewel went into labor. But he's on another emergency, so it's up to us, the old mare and me, and we're nearly spent. Angie is at Jewel's head, talking quietly to her. It's okay, girl. You'll be fine. Good girl. I wish she'd reassure me. Suddenly, Jewel puts her legs underneath her and tries to stand. I shout at Angie to help me keep her down. Like a typical teenager, she retorts, Don't yell at me. I know what to do. I have visions of Jewel snapping one of the frail little twigs that hang out of her. I'm foolish to think that a 110-pound young girl and a 135-pound woman can keep a 1,200-pound horse down. I'm thrown against a stall wall that still reeks of sour-smelling disinfectant. As Jewel stands up and walks around in a circle, the foal's legs flapping wildly. Watch yourself, hun, I say to Angie, not wanting her to get stepped on. The mare lies down again and turns over on her back, realizing my worst fears. She rolls across the end of one of the stick legs and my heart skips a beat. The mare lies down again and turns over on her back, realizing my worst fears. She rolls across the end of one of the stick legs and my heart skips beats. She moves back and forth several times like a cat scratching its spine. The spindly little legs follow her movements and flop around like partially cooked spaghetti. And she squeaks, Mom, she's going to kill it. Tears roll down her face. As much for my nerves as for Angie's, I caution. Calm down. Getting upset won't do any good. If this is too much for you, you're welcome to go in the house. She sobs, but stays. I wipe my face and realize it's wet, and not just from sweat. I've been so intent upon the scene in front of me that I was unaware how I, too, have been crying. Jewel lies back on her side, 180 degrees from where she lay before. She and I begin our familiar regimen of push and pull, but this time the baby slips out with little effort. 
I later find out that mares often exhibit a mysterious instinct to right a foal when it's positioned wrong, and will rise and adjust the foal on their own. Thankfully, the seemingly smart human, who tried to be an obstacle to that instinct, failed. Angie and I chuckle and patter to each other as we work quickly to free the membrane from around the baby's face. I use straw to clean out its nose. The foal's already breathing and scrambling to get its legs under it. I'll soon see if any damage has been done to the leg Jewel rolled on. I grab a couple of towels from the stack we've brought into the barn and dry the foal. What is it, Mom? Boy or girl? Angie asks. I've been too excited to look. I lift the foal's hind leg and look. A boy, I say. This foal was sired by an award-winning quarter horse, Mucho Dude, and my mare, Crown Jewel, was sired by a prize-winning Appaloosa, Prince Plotted. So we've picked out two names, Mucho Precious Gem for a filly and Royal Crown Cola, the brown name of a soda, for a cult. So R.C. Cola or Cola it is. It isn't until I dry the cute little face that I see the white C stamped in white on his brown forehead. The top of the C is much thicker, making it look like a crown. A coincidence? I don't think so. Cola struggles to get on his feet a couple of times and finally stands on shaky legs. I reflect on Angie's birth and realize I'm almost as excited now as I was then. After my daughter was born, I remember the doctor laying her in one of my arms, and whether from hormones or exhaustion, I cried and repeated over and over how beautiful she was with her dark hair and eyes and olive complexion. Jewel rests, but always has her eyes on Cola and gives him low-throated whinnies. April 10, 1994, 7.50 p.m. Now it's time to imprint and desensitize the new foal, massaging every inch of his body with my hands, getting my scent all over him and creating a three-way bond between mother, foal, and owner. After his rub-down, I put on rubber gloves to begin the desensitization process. Fingers inserted in mouth, nose, ears, sheath, and anus. Hoof soles pounded with palms, like a farrier's hammer, will someday pound. Buzzing clipper run in ears and over body. Pasteworm tube stuck in mouth. Crackling plastic bags and newspapers rubbed over body. Hands clapped until startled twitching stops. Whistle blown nearby. While some of these things may seem strange or unnecessary, this process will make Cola a calmer, better-handling animal and will curtail him from being skittish in new situations. April 10, 1994, 8.10 p.m. Jewel's finally up and around, keeping herself between Cola and us. She whirls around to see him with her good eye. R.C. stands again and tries to run. He falls forward on his nose in the soft straw shakes his head and gets up again. The leg I thought might be injured seems fine, and he doesn't favor it. Now all he has to do is nurse. Cola's legs collapse again. Jules circles him, but he doesn't show enough interest in the udder to rise. I squeeze Jules' milk into my hand and rub his nose with it. He perks up. When he next stands, I grab him around the legs and shuffle him over to Jewel. She won't stand still. I move under her, afraid we're both going to get stepped on. We do a little dance, but I finally get his mouth to the teat, and he starts sucking. Now it's time to get out of the way and leave them alone, so Jewel can relax. 
We've been intruders in a normally solitary event, and we've interfered enough. Angie and I will come back and check on them both periodically through a hole we've drilled in the stall wall. As Angie and I head toward the house, I remember nursing her every four hours round the clock when she was a newborn. She was entirely dependent on me then. As we reach the back door, I put my arm around her and say, Thanks for all your help. April 12, 1994. We let Jewel and Cola out into the pasture, and he runs as fast as he can. His mom can't keep up. He trots with his tail raised in the air, prancing and looking around to see who's watching, like a royal showing off his Schwarzenegger physique. When galloping, he cuts his turn so tight that he falls on his side several times and rises with a humiliated air. Angie and I watch and laugh. She just made cheerleader, and she, like Cola, is feeling great. Next, she'll be driving. Am I ready for this? April 15, 1994. Cola kicks and tries to bite me as I try to place a halter on him. I remind myself he's a wild animal that must be taught manners, and I need to establish myself as the equivalent of an alpha male in the herd. When he tries to bite me again, I grab his lips, squeezing them snugly and holding them for a while, telling him, No, R.C., we don't do that. He doesn't bite me again that day. When he kicks, I kick him back in a soft spot where he'll feel it, but not so hard as to really hurt him. He runs away, tail pulled between his legs. I've made my point. That night, Angie asked me if she can go to prom. I say, okay, and set an early curfew. She protests. July 12, 1994. My husband and I go to the garbage dump with a load of tree clippings and garden debris, and I find an old flat basketball there. I bring it home, disinfect it, and take it out to Cola. I've hung plastic milk cartons from the ceiling of the barn for him to bat around, and he's demolished most of them. He greets the basketball like an old friend and kicks it around for a while. I place it in front of his mouth, and he grabs it with his teeth, shaking it vigorously, much like a dog would. While Cola plays with the ball, I pull the shedding brush over him and coax out the dying baby hair for the hundredth time. In the last month, his dull, fuzzy brown coat has been replaced with a sleek chocolate brown one that has black, red, and white spots emerging throughout. On his rump is a brilliantly white, appetite blanket, coarser than the rest, interspersed with brown spots that have longer hair in them and that stick out from the white. Angie calls them his fizz spots. The white C on his forehead is even larger now and more pronounced. I remember back to when some of Angie's hair fell out at six months old to be replaced by coarser, thicker locks. At that age, Angie never liked booties on her feet or bows in her hair. She'd pull them off. She still doesn't like lacy trimmings, although she's less averse to wearing a dress these days. March 1998 my dream of more than four years ago is finally realized as Cola and I can walk, trot, and canter with me on his back. We're still a long way from being a unit, but I'm pleased with his progress. I ride him out on the trail today with Angie riding Jewel, and he doesn't shy at anything, even though a jackrabbit runs out in front of us and a flock of sparrows takes off near us. His desensitization at birth has paid off. On the trail, Angie and I talk about her upcoming wedding this summer her college classes, and her job possibilities. When we return from our ride, I raise Cola's now heavy hoof to clean it and think back to those wobbly stick legs scrambling in the straw to stand. 
Jewel doesn't whinny at him anymore, and I don't hover. Cola's outgrowing the need for a mother, and so is Angie. A fragile life, miraculous at birth, undergoes a series of changes, some great, some small, some miracles of their own, until at last that life learns to stand, walk, and run all by itself. July 1998. The graduate degree I want to pursue is out of state, so I have to sell cola. It's the saddest day of my life, but I feel like doors are opening to pursue my dream because my son has grown and married, and Angie is in college and due to be married next month. I sell cola to a cowboy in Sun Valley, who later sends me a picture of him, the new owner, lying in the grass on top of a mountain. Cola is bent over him, nuzzling his face. Postscript, July 2017. Cola would be an old man now, in horse years, 23 to be exact. I often wonder what he's up to, whether he's still being ridden in the hills of Sun Valley. I'm proud of the horse he became. In her 30s, Angie has grown into a beautiful, independent mother of two. I'm so proud of the woman she's become. I miss my little colt, the fun times we had on the trail, and I miss those days when Angie and I would get our hair cut together or go to the zoo. Here are four thematic poems by Eugene Shea. We'll start with Independence Day. Rise up, you ostrich types. Get your heads above the sand. Forget your petty complaints. It's the birthday of our land. Stand tall in freedom's sunshine and count your blessings twice. Born in freedom's homeland, our ancestors paid the price. Where treason, trial, and hanging tree was their fate if they should lose. Or freedom from a foreign crown and a free man's right to choose. From 13 scruffy colonies to world mentor of the free, from the shores of Portland, Maine, to Carmel-by-the-Sea, from Hiawatha's shining waters to the green Gulf of Mexico, to every man, one vote, one flag, and every state you choose to go. East or west, north or south, wherever you may roam, it's a good land. It's our land, where freedom makes its home. This one is called Heritage of the West. As rugged as the mountain peaks whose snow-capped summits touch the sky, from sheltered lands they came to seek, harsh lands forbidding to the weak, where winter snows in summer lie. In mud and snow and boots worn through, in heat and dust of summer drought, a land so big, they were so few, they improvised and made things do and looked the devil in his mouth. Dreamed and made their dreams come true despite this cruel, relentless land, and managed all as best they knew, and from this humble start there grew an empire carved from sage and sand. Across the years, their heritage spans the spirit that built and tamed the West, who worked and fought and won these lands with freezing feet and work-worn hands. Hold high their torch with which we're blessed. In Our Land I've walked the streets of our cities, the villages, and the towns, 
saw the strength of our country where her people were the crowns. Saw the factories and the farms, office buildings and the malls where America earns its living and freedom of opportunity calls. Where ingenuity and ambition builds new enterprises every day. Some will flourish, some will fail, but each one shall have its day. It's a racing world of commerce where the dollar rules the land. Yet we stoop to smell the posies and to lend the weak a hand. Our ancestors sailed the Mayflower, or Grandpa swam the Rio Grande. Their descendants meld a nation and make this be freedom's land. The last one is called Homeland. This homeland is yours and mine, though we live a continent apart. But it's not the lie of the land, but the geography of the heart. Some born of pilgrim fathers, of others he swam the Rio Grande. But horses of hell can't drag me from this, my native land. Our ship of state is not worn out, though her paint has grown a bit dull and shows the scars of battle, a few scrapes along her hull. But no mother born is perfect, nor father that's always right nor country made of mortal men, but may stumble in the night. Though critics continue to bash her, highlight each wart and blot, she's still the finest there is and the only home I've got. If it's corny to love one's country, let the corn hang out of my ears. I stand bareheaded before God and offer this country three cheers. Non-retaliatory, being like Jesus. Samson decided to go see his wife, but upon arriving, her father told him she had been given to another man in marriage. Samson said to them, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So begins the expanding circle of revenge surrounding Samson. Samson burns the fruitful fields of the Philistines, destroying their economy. They retaliate by killing his father-in-law and his wife. Samson says to this, Since you have acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacks them viciously and slaughters many. They retaliate by going to Judah to do to him as he did to them. The men of Judah find Samson and bind him for the Philistines. But he breaks the bindings, picks up the jawbone of a dead donkey, and kills a thousand Philistines. Fast forward to later, when the Philistines engage Delilah to find out the secret of Samson's strength, and then they exploit it. Samson, though captured and eyes gouged out, gets his final revenge in the Temple of Dagon when he brings it down on the rulers and the people, killing many more in his death than in his life. This is the stuff of revenge. It burns in the soul and expands in the process. What you think is equal justice for the crime escalates in your mind. The revenge is worse and does not stop the cycle. It just increases it. We feel the need for justice, to be the judge, and it destroys us. It ends up involving more people that are innocent. It keeps on rolling on as both parties heighten their vengeful acts. Do we have the right to inflict revenge? Peter offers Christ's striking alternative when he said, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Paul reflected on this when he said, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. Our task is not to become the judge, but to let the judge take care of it. As Paul said, leave room for God to act. God has the final say on the hearts and lives of evil people. He will retaliate in his time for the deeds they have done. We must step back and consider this if we are to conform to Christ's image. These kid chuckles uh, come from a time when uh, Lisa was eight, Toby was six, and Brady was three. And one day they were talking about their grandmother. Toby said, Grandma Carrie says taters for potatoes. And Brady said, She's pretty. And then Elisa added, I want to live with Grandma because she has that new room and that big hill to slide on. There's, there's good logic, good reason to move in with Grandma. One day Steve was kissing my neck and Brady said, Mom, Dad's eating you. <laughs> and Toby while eating a bowl of black beans, said, I wish there was no such thing as this kind of beans. And then there was the day when I cleaned out Brady's nose, and he said, I don't eat the big boogers. I said, I'm really glad to hear that. But then he added, I eat the little boogers. (laughs) 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 Uh, Last night, Elisa said, Hey, Mom, I've got a question for you. Will we grow in heaven? Which is a really good question. I have no idea what my answer was. (laughs) Probably, I have no idea. I was chasing Brady down the hallway, tickling him when he said, You can't tickle me, lady. (laughs) A couple more from three-year-old Brady. He wanted to brush his teeth while he was eating, and I told him no. He replied, but my teeth are sticking out. And and then there was his observation on the day when I had a clay face mask on. Uh, He looked at me and he said, Mom, your face looks like a hill for cars to go zoom, zoom. (laughs) And we're going to zoom, zoom out of here for this podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carey Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.